Chapter Two, Part Two of *The Night Operator* by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. *The Night Operator*, Chapter Two, Part Two. Owsley hadn't been fit for excitement or exertion of that kind, for any kind of excitement or exertion. They took him back to his boarding house, and Doctor McTurk screwed his eyes up over him in the funny way he had when things looked critical and mrs mccann nursed him daytimes and carleton and regan and two or three others took turns sitting up with him nights for a month then owsley began to mend again and began to talk of getting back on the limited run with the sixteen o one always the sixteen o one and most times he talked pretty straight too as straight as any of the rest of them only his memory seemed to keep that queer sort of haze over it up to the time of the accident it seemed all right, but after that things blurred woefully. Regan, Carleton, and Dr. McTurk went into committee over it in the super's office one afternoon just before Owsley was out of bed again. "'What do you say? What do you say, Doc?' demanded Regan. Dr. McTurk, scientific and professional in every inch of his little body, lined his eyebrows up into a ferocious black streak across his forehead and talked medicine in medical terms into the superintendent and the master mechanic for a good five minutes when he had finished carleton's brows were puckered too his face was a little blank and he tapped the edge of his desk with the end of his pencil somewhat helplessly regan tugged at both ends of his mustache and sputtered what the blazes he growled give it to us in plain railroading has he got rights through or hasn't he does he get better or does he not hmm? i don't know i tell you retorted dr mcturk i don't know and that's flat i've told you why a minute ago i don't know whether he'll ever be better in his head than he is now otherwise he'll come around all right well what's to be done inquired carleton eh, he's got to work for a living i suppose hmm? Dr. McTurk answered, and he can't run an engine any more on account of the colors, no matter what happens. That's a state of affairs, isn't it? Carleton didn't answer. Regan only mumbled under his breath. Well, then, submitted Dr. McTurk, the best thing for him, temporarily at least, uh, to build him up, is fresh air and plenty of it. Give him a job somewhere out in the open. Carleton's eyebrows went up. He looked across at Regan questioningly. He wouldn't take it, said Regan slowly. There's nothing to anything for Owsley but the 1601. Wouldn't take it, snapped the little doctor. He's got to take it. And if you care half what you pretend you do for him, you got to see that he does. How about uh, construction work with McCann, suggested Carleton. He likes McCann, and he's lived at their place for years now. Just the thing, declared Dr. McTurk heartily. Couldn't be better. Carleton looked at Regan again. You can handle him better than anyone else, Tommy. Suppose you see what you can do. And speaking of the 1601, how would it do to tell him what's happened in the last month? Maybe he wouldn't think so much of her as he does now. No, exclaimed Dr. McTurk quickly. Don't you do it. No, said Regan, shaking his head. It would make him worse. He'd blame it on Paxley and would have trouble on our hands before you could bat an eyelash. "'Yes, perhaps you're right,' agreed Carleton. "'Well, then, try him on the construction tack, Tommy.' 
and so Regan went that afternoon from the super's office over to Mrs. McCann's short-order house and up to Owsley's room. "'Well, how's Jake today?' he inquired in his bluff, cheery way, drawing a chair up beside the bed. "'I'm fine, Regan,' said Owsley earnestly. "'Fine. What day is this?' "'Thursday,' Regan told him. "'Yes,' said Owsley. "'That's right. Thursday. "'Well?' You can put me down to take the old 1601 out Monday night. I'm figuring to get back on the run Monday night, Regan. Regan ran his hand through his short-cropped hair, twisted a little uneasily in his chair, and coughed to fill in the gap. I wouldn't be in a hurry about it if I were you, Jake, he said. In fact, that's what I came over to have a little talk with you about. We don't think you're strong enough yet for the cab. Who don't? demanded Owsley antagonistically. Well, the, the doctor and Carlton and myself, we, we were just speaking about it. Why ain't I? demanded Owsley again. Why, good Lord, Jake, said Regan patiently, you've been sick, there's near two months. A man can't expect to get out of bed after a layoff like that and start right in again before he gets his strength back. You know that as well as I do. Maybe I do, and uh, maybe I don't said Owsley, a little uncertainly. Uh, how am I going to get strong? Well, replied Regan, the doc says open-air work to build you up, and we were thinking uh, you might like to put in a month, say, with Bill McCann up on the Elk River work, helping him boss Polax, for instance. Owsley didn't speak for a moment. He seemed to be puzzling something out, and then still, in a puzzled way, and what about after the month? Oh, why then, said Regan, then he reached for his hip pocket and his plug, pulled out the plug, picked the heart-shaped tin tag off with his thumbnail, decided not to take a bite, and put the black strap back in his pocket again. Why then, said he, you'll, you ought to be all right again. Owsley sat up in bed. You're playing straight with me, Regan, he asked slowly. Oh, sure, said Regan gruffly, sure I am. Owsley passed his hand two or three times across his eyes. "'I don't seem to get the signals right on what's happened,' he said. "'I guess I've been pretty sick. I, I guess I had a feeling a minute ago that, that you were trying to sidetrack me. But if you say you ain't, I believe you. I ain't going to be sidetracked. When I quit for keeps, I quit in the cab with my boots on. No way else. I'll tell you something, Regan. When I go out, I'm going out with my hand on the throttle, same as it's been for more than twenty years. And me and the old 1601 were going out together. That's the way I want to go when the time comes. That's the way I'm going. I've known it for a long time. But how do you mean you've known it for a long time? Regan swallowed a lump in his throat as he asked the question. Owsley's mind seemed to be wandering a little. I don't know, said Owsley, and his hand crept to his head again. I don't know. I, I just know. Then abruptly, I got to get strong for the old 1601, ain't I? That's right. I'll go up there. Only if you give me your word, I get the 1601 back after the month. Regan's eyes from the floor lifted and met Owsley's steadily. "'You bet, Jake,' said he. 
give me your hand on it, said Owsley happily, and Regan gripped the engineer's hand. Regan left the room a moment or two after that, and on his way downstairs he brushed the back of his hand across his eyes. What the hell, he growled to himself. I had to lie to him, didn't I? And so, on the Monday following, Owsley went up to the new Elk River road work, and, but just a moment, we've overrun our holding orders a bit, and we've got to back for the siding. The 1601 crosses us here. Superstition is a queer thing, isn't it? Speaking generally, we look on it somewhat from the viewpoint of the old adage that all men are mortal save ourselves. That is, we can accept with more or less tolerant condescension the existence of superstition in others, and with more or less tolerant condescension put it down to ignorance in others. But we're not superstitious ourselves so we've got to have something better to go on than that as far as the 1601 is concerned well the 1601 was pretty badly shaken up that night in the spill at elbow bend and when they overhauled her in the shops while well, they made her look like new perhaps they missed something down deep in her vitals and the doing of it Perhaps she was weakened and strained where they didn't know she was. Perhaps they didn't get clean to the bottom of all her troubles. Perhaps they made a bad job of a job that looked all right under the fresh paint and the gold leaf. There's nothing superstitious about that, is there? It's logical and reasonable enough to satisfy even the most hypercritical crank amongst us anti-superstitionists. Isn't it? But that doesn't go in the cabs and the roundhouses and the section shanties on the hill division. You could talk and reason out there along that line until you were blue in the face from shortness of breath, and they'd listen to you while they wiped their hands on a hunk of waste. They'd listen, but they've got their own notions. It was the night at Elbow Bend that Owsley and the 1601 together first went wrong, and both went into hospital together and came out together to the day, the 1601 for her old run through the mountains, and Owsley with no other idea in life possessing his sick brain than to make the run with her. Owsley had a relapse that day, and that day, twenty miles west of Big Cloud, the 1601 blew her cylinder head off. And from then on, while Owsley lay in bed again at Mrs. McCann's, the 1601, when she wasn't in the shops from an endless series of mishaps, was turning the hair gray on a dispatcher or two, and got most of Paxley's nerve. But what's the use of going into all the details? There was enough paper used up in the specification repair sheets. Going slow up a grade and around a curve that was protected with ninety-pound guardrails, her pony truck jumped the steel where a baby carriage would have held to the right of way. She broke this, she broke that, she was always breaking something and rare was the night that she didn't limp into division, dragging the grumbling occupants of the mahogany sleepers after her with her schedule gone to smash. And then finally, putting a clincher on it all, she ended up, when she was running fifty miles an hour, by shedding a driving wheel and nearly killing Paxley as the rod ripped through and through, tearing the right-hand side of the cab into mangled wreckage. And that finished her for the limited run. Do you recall that Owsley, too, was finished for the limited run superstition you can 
Figure it any way you like. They've got their own notions on the Hill Division. When the 1601 came out of the shops again after that, the marks of authority's disapprobation were heavy upon her. The gold leaf of the passenger flyer was gone. The big figures on the tender were only yellow paint. Regan scowled at her as they ran her into the yards. Damn her, said Regan fervently. And then as he thought of Owsley, he scowled deeper and yanked at his mustache. Say, said Regan heavily, it's queer, ain't it? Blamed queer, huh, when you come to think of it. And so, while the 1601, disfranchised, went to hauling extra freights, kind of a misfit doing spare jobs, anything that turned up, no regular run any more, Owsley, kind of a misfit too, without any very definite duties, because there wasn't anything very definite they dared trust him with, went up on the Elk River work with Bill McCann, the husband of Mrs. McCann, who kept the short order house. Owsley told McCann, as he had told Regan, that he was only up there getting strong again for the 1601, and he went around on the construction work whistling and laughing like a schoolboy and happy as a child, getting strong again for the 1601. McCann couldn't see anything very much the matter with Owsley, except that Owsley was happy. He studied the letter Regan had sent him, and watched the engineer, and scratched at his bullet head, and blinked fast with his grey Irish eyes. Faith, said McCann, it's them that's off their chumps, not Owsley. Hark to him singing out there like a lark, and by dad, it's meself tell him so. And he did. He wrote his opinion in concise, forceful, misspelled English on the back of a requisition slip, and sent it to Regan. Regan didn't say much, just choked up a little when he read it. McCann wasn't very strong on diagnosis. It was still early spring when Owsley went to the new loop they were building around the main line to tap a bit of the country south, and the Chinook, blowing warm, had melted most of the snow, and the creeks, rivers, and sluices were running full, the busiest time in all the year for the track men and section hands. It was a summer's job, the loop, if luck was with them, and the orders were to push the work. The steel was to be down before the snow flew again. That was the way it was put up to McCann when he first moved into construction camp, a short while before Owsley joined him. "'Then give me the stuff,' said McCann. "'Shoot the material along, and don't leave me biting me fingernails for the want of it, you mind?' So the Big Cloud Yards, too, had orders, standing orders, to rush out all material for the Elk River Loop as fast as it came in from the east. In a way, of course, that was how it happened, from the standing orders. It was just the kind of work the 1601 was hanging around, waiting to do, the odd jobs, pulling the extras. Ordinarily, perhaps, somebody would have thought of it, and maybe they wouldn't have sent her out. Maybe they would. You can't operate a railroad wholly on sentiment. And there were ten cars of steel and as many more of ties and conglomerate supplies helping to choke up the big cloud yards when they should have been where they were needed a whole lot more, in McCann's construction camp. But there had been two days of bad weather in the mountains, two days of solid rain, track troubles, and troubles generally, and what with one thing and another, the motive power department had been taxed to its limit. The first chance they got in a lull of pressure, not the storm, they sent the material west with the only spare engine that happened to be in the roundhouse at the time, the 1601, and never thought of Owsley. 
Regan might have, would have, if he had known it, but Regan didn't know it, then. Regan wasn't handling the operating. Perhaps, after all, they needn't have been in a belated hurry that day. McCann and his foreigners had done nothing but hug their shanties and listen to the rain washing the ballast away for two days and a half, until, as it got dark on that particular day, barely a week after Owsley had come to the work, they listened, by way of variation, to the chime whistle of an engine that came ringing down with the wind. McCann and Owsley shared a little shanty by themselves, and McCann was trying to initiate Owsley into the mysteries of that grand old game so dear to the hearts of Irishmen, the game of forty-five. But at the first sound of the whistle, the cards dropped from Owsley's hands, and he jumped to his feet. "'Do you hear that? Do you hear that?' he cried. "'Ah, for what of it?' inquired McCann. "'It'll be the material we'd be hung up for if weren't for the storm.' Owsley leaned across the table, his head turned a little sideways in a curious listening attitude, leaned across the table and gripped McCann's shoulders. "'It's the 1601,' he whispered. He put his finger to his lips to caution silence, and with the other hand patted McCann's shoulder confidentially. "'It's the 1601,' he whispered, and jumped for the door, out into the storm. "'For the love of Mike!' gasped McCann, struggling to his feet as the lamp flared up and out with the draft. "'Now what the devil! From this and the misfortunate way he picks up forty-five. Maybe, maybe I was wrong, and maybe it's queer after us that he is, and—' McCann was still muttering to himself as he stumbled to the door. There was no sign of Owsley, only a string of boxes and flats backed down and rattling and bumping to a halt on the temporary track a hundred yards away. Then the joggling light of a trainman running through the murk and evidently hopping the engine pilot, for the light disappeared suddenly and McCann heard the locomotive moving off again. McCann couldn't see the main line or the little station they had erected there since the work began for the purpose of operating the construction trains, but he knew well enough what was going on. Off the main line, in lieu of a turntable, and to facilitate matters generally, they had built a Y into the construction camp and the work train, in from the east, had dropped its caboose on the main line between the arms of the Y, gone ahead, backed the flats and boxes down the west end arm of the Y into the camp, left them there in front of him, and the engine, shooting off on the main line again, via the east end arm of the Y, would be heading east and had only to back up the main line and couple on the caboose for the return trip to Big Cloud. There were no empties to go back, he knew. It was raining in torrents, pitilessly, and over the gusts of wind, the thunder went racketing through the mountains like the discharge of heavy guns. McCann swore with sincerity as he gazed from the doorway, didn't like the look of it, and was minded to let Owsley go to the devil. But instead, after getting into rubber boots, a rubber coat, and lighting a lantern, he put his head down to butt the storm, goat fashion, and started out. "'Me conscience would not be clear of anything happened to the man.' communed McCann, as he battered and sloshed his way along. "'Tis one hell of a night!' McCann lost some time. He could have made a shortcut over to the main line and the station, but instead, thinking Owsley might have run up the track beside the camp toward the front end of the construction train and the engine, he kept along past the string of cars. There was no Owsley, and the only result he obtained from shouting at the top of his lungs was to have the wind slap his voice back in his teeth. McCann headed then for the station. He took the west end arm of the Y, that being the nearer to his destination, 
Halfway across he heard the engine backing up on the main line, and a moment later saw her headlight and the red taillights of the caboose as she coupled on. Of course it was against the rules, but rules are broken sometimes, aren't they? It was a wicked night, and the station, diminutive and makeshift as it was, looked mighty hospitable and inviting by comparison. The engine crew, Matt Dugan and Green, his fireman, thought it sized up better while they were waiting for orders than the cab of the 1601 did, and they didn't see why the train crew, McGonagall, the conductor, and his two brakemen should have any the better of it, so they left their engine and crowded into the station too. There wasn't much room left for McCann when he came in like an animated shower bath. He heard Merle, the young operator, they'd probably been guying him, snap at McGonagall. I ain't got any orders for you yet, but you better get into the clear on the Y. The Limited East is due in four minutes. See, panted McCann, see. And that was as far as he got. Matt Dugan, making a wild dash for the door, knocked the rest of his breath out of him. And after Dugan, in a mad and concerted rush, sweeping McCann along with it, the others burst through the door and out on the platform as volleying through the storm came suddenly the quick staccato bark of engine exhaust. For a moment, huddled there, trying to get the rights of it, no one spoke. Then it came in a yell from Matt Dugan. "'She's gone!' he screamed, and gulped for his breath. "'She's gone!' McCann looked and blinked and shook the rain out of his face. Two hundred yards east, down the track, and disappearing fast, were the twinkling red tail lights of the caboose. "'By the tokens of all the saints!' stammered McCann. "'Hitch! Hitch!' he grabbed at Matt Dugan. "'What engine is it?' It was McGonagall who answered as they crowded back inside for shelter, and answered quick, getting McCann's dropped jaw. "'A sixteen-oh-one. What's wrong with you, McCann?' "'Holy mother!' stuttered McCann miserably. "'That settled it. It's Owsley. "'Twas the whistle, you mind. The whistle!' Merle, young and hysterical, was up in the air. "'The limited! The limited!' he burst out, white-faced. "'There ain't three miles between them. She's coming now!' McGonagall grizzled old veteran cool in any emergency whirled on the younger man then stop her he drawled don't make a fool of yourself show your red and hold her here until you get mid cloud on the wire they're both running the same way aren't they you blamed idiot everything's out of the road far enough east of here on account of the limited to give them time at headquarters to take care of things let them have it at big cloud and big cloud got it Spence, the dispatcher on the early night trick, got it, and Carleton and Regan, at their homes, got it in a hurried call from Spence over their private keys that brought them running to headquarters. "'I've cleared the line,' said Spence. "'The Limited is holding at Elk River till Brooks Cut reports Owsley through. Then she's to trail along.' Carleton nodded and took a chair beside the dispatcher's table. Regan, as ever with him in times of stress, tugged at his mustache and paced up and down the room. He stepped once in front of Carleton and laughed shortly, and there was more in his words, a whole lot more, than he realized then. The Lord knows where he'll stop now with a bit in his mouth. But suppose he'd been heading the other way, into the Limited, hm, head on, instead of just tying up all the blame traffic between here and the Elk, what? We can thank God for that. Carleton didn't answer, except by another nod. He was listening to Spence at the key, asking Brooks Cut why they didn't report Owsley through. The rain rattled at the window panes, and the sashes shook under the gusts of wind. Out in the yards below, the switch lights showed blurred and indistinct, 
Regan paced the room more and more impatiently. Carlton's face began to go hard. Spence hung tensely over the table, his fingers on the key, waiting for the sounder to break, waiting for the brook's cut call. It was only seven miles from Elk River, where the stalled passengers of the Limited, will you remember this, grumbled and complained, pettish in their discontent at the delay, only seven miles from there to Brooks Cut, the first station east, only seven miles, but the minutes passed, and still Brooks Cut answered, No. And Carlton's face grew harder still, and Regan swore deep down under his breath from a full heart, and Spence grew white and rigid in his chair, and so they waited there, waited with the sense of disaster growing cold upon them, waited, but Brooks Cut never reported Owsley in or out that night. Owsley! Who knows what was in the poor warped brain that night? He had heard her call to him, and they had brought him back to 1601, and she was standing there alone, deserted, and she had called to him. Who knows what was in his mind as... Together he and the 1601 went tearing through the black storm-rent night, when the rivers and the creeks and the sluices were running full, and the Elk River that paralleled the right-of-way for a mile or two to the crossing was a raging torrent. Who knows if he ever heard the thundering crash with which the Elk River bridge went out? Who knows, as he swung the curve that opened the bridge approach without time for any man, Owsley or another, to have stopped if the headlight played on the surge of maddened waters meant anything to him? Who knows? That was where they found him, beneath the waters, Owsley and the 1601. And Owsley was smiling, his hand tight-gripped upon the throttle that he loved. I don't know, says Regan when he speaks of Owsley. If the mountains out here have anything to do with making a man think harder, I don't know. Sometimes I think they do. You get to figuring that the Grand Master maybe goes a long way back, years and years to work things out. If it hadn't been for Owsley, the Limited would have gone into the Elk that night with every soul on board. Owsley? <laughs> That's the way he wanted to go out, wasn't it? with the 1601. Maybe the Grand Master thought of him, too. End of chapter 2